0: On R2C2, CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco guide listeners through everything going on in the MLB, NBA, and NFL. They also talk to friends, athletes, and celebrities about the world of sports and much more. Check out R2C2 with CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco on Spotify
1: or wherever you get your podcasts. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA
0: playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today is Ringer Managing Editor Ben Glicksman. Say hello, Ben. Hello. I'm really happy to have you with me because we were up talking about the controversial ending of Game 5 of the NLBS last night. Wilmore Flores called out. Did he go around? Not even close. The bat barely left his shoulder by about, you know, half a foot and then that was it. Giants season over, 107 wins, and uh, and going home. It's it's unfair. I mean, first of all, this is not a a call that you see get made in that situation. It, it just seems I think it's you know just a shame to for a team that that had this much going for it that you know put on such a, a great performance in the the first round of the playoffs to get sent home like that. And obviously, like there's more to it than that. But you know, the more this series went on, the more I got attached to the idea of. The Giants making a run and getting to to develop like the Logan Webb playoff legend and stuff like that. And it's it's I'm I'm a little sad to to see that end so quickly. Yeah, I I would have wanted this to be the NLCS. I would have wanted this to be the World Series. You know, these were the two best teams in baseball, and to see this uh, to see this end after five games and on just an absolute horrendous call is is a tough one to swallow. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Ben. Uh, we're gonna uh, make a quick pitching change, uh, but thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's been great having you. Yeah, it's been great. I know Cram has been uh, storming around the bullpen like Max Scherzer, just waiting to waiting to bring himself into the game. So you know, I hope you guys have a good podcast. Best of luck. All right. Many thanks to Ben for giving us that first inning of work, like Corey Canable. Now we're gonna. Uh, Make a call to the bullpen for our bulk reliever, our 20-game winner, ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. Zach, do you feel rested and, and, and raring to go for this more favorable matchup we've got you by employing the opener?
1: Yeah, I'm glad I get to face a more advantageous part of the lineup. You don't have the platoon advantage against me anymore, and I'm ready for a good pod. Since we're doing the
0: bit. Let's start with the decision to to go with an opener in game five uh, with a fully rested, high quality starting pitcher that I thought this was a little cute by Dave Roberts, but it seems to, to have worked out in the end.
1: Yeah, it's definitely the kind of call that is either genius or idiotic, and that's entirely dependent on what the outcome would be. I think Annie McCulloch at The Athletic had a really great look. At what actually went into this decision, when it happened, who was consulted. And I think that's an important point I'll get back to in a second. But strategically, it did what it was intended to do. It meant the Giants had to fiddle with their lineup a bit. The Giants obviously have a couple mainstays in the lineup, like Posey and Crawford, but then a lot of platoon bats. And by going with righties to start the game, then Arias as a lefty, and then righties to finish the game in the bullpen because all of the Dodgers' best relievers are right-handed, they forced Gabe Kapler to choose. And what ended up happening is Kenley Jansen, for instance, got a more favorable, advantage, uh, a more favorable matchup in the eighth inning because Donovan Solano had pinch hit for Tommy La Stella earlier. And in the ninth inning, they got to face Wilmer Flores because Lamont Wade was unavailable because he had to pinch hit. For uh, Austin Slater, who had pinch hit for Mikey Sturmski earlier. So I think by forcing the Giants to not be able to just put in their righties to start the game against Arias and their lefties to finish the game against all the Dodgers relievers by splitting those relievers up, they forced some difficult decisions that helped them in the late innings. Could the Dodgers have won this game anyway? Sure. Arias won game two. He's a good pitcher. And if they had gone Arias to start the game and then just the five righties after him, it probably would have worked too. But it's hard to argue with the results. They allowed one run in nine innings in a must-win game. And just going back to the communication point for a second, this piece that Andy wrote in The Athletic is really great in identifying the human element that needed to go into this decision ju- just beyond the strategy. This is where, for instance, the Yankees plan to use David Garcia and Jay Happ in similar roles last year didn't work because Happ was like, yeah, I wasn't consulted about this. I wasn't ready. With uh, Arias, they said they went to him, and if he had said no, they would have just started him because he's a good enough pitcher that he's earned that right. Uh, They also went to other guys in the clubhouse, Bueller and Scherzer and Kershaw and Betts, and they made sure they were all okay with it, having been presented with the evidence, because they knew there was the potential for disappointment and and embarrassment, but they wanted to make sure there was buy-in, at least within the clubhouse. And I think that's really important. The best front offices and best managers now have that blend of data and analytics from the front office with the human level in the clubhouse.
0: Yeah, that point is just so important and if you hadn't brought up the what the Yankees did last year, I would have because uh it's it, the when you're talking with with a really small advance or a really small margin, like you are with the decision to use, I mean, they probably would have used most of these pitchers anyway, just in a different order. But when you're going after these really small marginal gains, you need to get buy-in because the players, the best plan is the one that the players are going to execute with confidence. And if so, if they have lingering doubts, if they're not ready to go out there uh, and really throw their full weight behind, uh, you know, a an I guess a less unorthodox strategy than it used to be, but still not the default way to operate. Uh, then you're going to take away some of the advantage that you get by forcing the giants into this awkward tactical situation. I think so. Another thing I want to uh, want to highlight about this is they managed to steal in a bat from Arias. I mean, Arias hit anyway, but uh, we saw the giants come bring Logan Webb to the plate as the traditional starter with men on base and two outs. And that ended up killing a rally, you know, that could have been the difference between winning and losing this game. And the Dodgers had one less played appearance that they wasted on a pitcher. And so when you're talking about a two, one game and what's been a fairly low scoring series with two, two great pitching staffs, I think even that is a, an underrated element to, um, to recommend an opener in this situation. So, you know, there, there are different things that maybe they could have executed differently. I mean, they could have lost this game too, two to one. Like this could have been, this was not, uh, there was not a whole lot in it. So, um, but like you said, the results really vindicated them.
1: And Arias himself only threw four innings, which on the surface probably is not a win given his quality this season. And in game two against the giants, and especially because the Dodgers weren't able to score many runs either, that bullpen would have gotten really shallow before the giants did. If, they hadn't scored in the top of the ninth and it's Scherzer and how much length can he give you having pitched game three just a few days earlier and then after him it's like Joe Kelly and Phil Bickford and Alex Vessia so I don't think the Dodgers could have gone as deep into extra innings as the Giants could have but at the same time Arias faced 15 batters and let's say he had started the game Darren Ruff hit leadoff against him in game two, based on the way Darren Ruff hit him last night. I can't imagine Dave Roberts would have let Arias face Ruff a third time through the order anyway. So then you're only getting an extra three batters out of Arias. If he had started the game, of course that's the fallacy of the predetermined outcome and everything. But if they had just gone with the game two lineups, I think Arias would have gone 18 batters max anyway. So the Dodgers, if Arias wasn't going to give them the link that Logan Webb did would have been short in extra innings anyway.
0: Yeah. I, Don't know that the Dodgers would have been scrambling for, particularly if if Scherzer had gone into that ninth inning with the game tied. Um, Well, if they had, I mean, you just back up the dominoes, maybe Jansen gets another inning, maybe trying gets Mm -hmm. another inning somewhere in there. So maybe they're, they managed to avoid using Scherzer until extra innings in a tie game. But if he can give them two or three innings, then you can go to Kelly who I like, I know the memes, but he's a solid you know, playoff reliever. If you're going to him in the 13th inning of a playoff game, you're probably, you know, you probably have the advantage. Um, But the point about Arias pitching deeper into games, that was one of my major misgivings about, uh, about using the openers. You're taking two guys who you would ordinarily use in like the sixth, seventh innings. And assuming that Arias goes five or six, uh, you're going to end up taking him out in the sixth, the seventh, which they did but you're going to be down two relievers when you do it. Does that make sense? I'm operating on very little sleep, so I just want to make sure that like, um, the
1: point's it, the, the coming point, across. The point you're making being they would have gotten to trying it in the seventh inning with those other guys having pitched anyway?
0: Well, if Arias goes deep, well, not if if Arias, if they let him face rough a third time. I guess oh, that's okay. the, yes. yeah, so, I mean, where have we gone that, Facing Darren Ruff a third time is now like hey, this massive hit,
1: critical inflection point. He right? hit twelve hundred feet worth of fly balls in his first three. Man, Fx that last was night.
0: that. What can the Giants do to keep this from happening next season? They can move that right center field fence in about fifteen feet because that like that power alley ate up about six runs worth of homers for them last night.
1: Um, which added to the tension. This game is one of the best in recent MLB history. I think both because of the actual gameplay and because of the stakes involved. It actually reminded me a lot of Game 5 between the Yankees and Rays last year, where there was just no way those teams were stringing together rallies. I think all the runs were scored on solo homers because the pitching was just so dominant. And the pitching wasn't quite as dominant in this game, but the stakes were higher, given the rivalry between the teams, given that they were the two best teams in baseball. And also, I think the fact that the pitching wasn't quite so dominant actually helped because you got a lot of even if not traffic on the bases, you got a lot of loud contact, a lot of fly balls that I wondered, is that going to go for a double or go over the fence? And then they die at the warning track. And it was a succession of brief moments of excitement. And I I don't think there were enough lead changes or topsy-turvy excitement in the late innings that I would put that up with like the 2016 World Series Game 7 or the 2014 uh, A's Royals game on my list of like best games of the last decade. But it's certainly up there given everything that happened. I think the ending, as you talked about with Ben took away from that drama a little bit, but I also don't want to be like a, you know, a game of Thrones fan who says uh, season eight was such a disappointment that now season one through seven are retroactively bad. Like the rest of the game was awesome up until that last check swing call. And I don't think it ruins the first three and a half hours of the experience.
0: I agree. I I mean, if you, if, was the difference between O two and one two? The the tying run was still at first base. Kind of the funny Giants- that
1: Wilmer Flores was also over for 17 career against Scherzer. I don't believe in batter pitcher matches. When you're 0 for 17, I yeah. kind of do believe in batter pitcher Kind of have to.
0: Yeah. Um, but to your Game of Thrones point, at least you could see the action on this uh this mixed, this check <laughs> swing call, which is more than you could say for parts of season eight of Game of Thrones. Uh, so I'm with you that my favorite games my certainly my favorite playoff games of the past 10 years. If we're making a list, maybe we should make a list. This content, Bobby put a, put a pin in that idea. They tend to be one of the two genres of great baseball games, which the first is that sort of back and forth where there's a lot of lead changes and a lot of offense. And it's, you know, two runs in the top of the fourth and three runs in the bottom of the fifth. And and it goes back. You know, we went to game two of the 2017 World Series uh, together. That was uh, an example of of a game like that. And I think I prefer that because it feels more it feels like there's more in the balance when the pitching isn't as dominant, but there's a completely different feeling for a game like this. Where you know there might only be three runs the entire time, so you just sit there in this constant state of anxiety and anticipation for three and a half hours in this case, and you know, like I've got nothing riding on this except for the nature of the column I have to write after this. I can't imagine just the stress that this must have presented for for somebody with a partisan interest, and you know, it's I I, I think which is the the more cathartic or which is the more uh, more exciting type of tension uh comes down to personal preference but it, it it's interesting to me how different the two sensations are because you really feel I, like i felt this game differently than i did like game three of the the Rays red sox series for instance
1: and i think the atmosphere lent itself to making this an event this was the only series that yes. went five and because the al was a day before the nl this year that meant every other series was over for two days before this one. So you had a lot of buildup toward it. There was, I guess, some interruption earlier in the day with the Mike Schultz firing, but but that's all that we had to focus on in baseball since uh, since Tuesday night. And also the aesthetics of the game itself were really great. And part of what I love about baseball in that, the Dodgers scored their runs with singles. The Mookie Betts stole a base. Mm-hmm. They Justin Turner was hit by a pitch, and they drove in runs with singles or bloop doubles. And Darren Ruff scored the Giants run with a 450-foot bomb. And it goes to show that there are different ways to score in baseball. When Logan Webb in the second inning was throwing change-ups, and uh, Brewster Gratterall was throwing 102-mile-an-hour sinkers, it sh- just shows the diversity of this game. And I think this wasn't, As good in my mind as like 2014 uh athletics royals but two to one is maybe my favorite scoreline of any baseball game because i love a good pitcher's duel and i think this game itself was kind of a microcosm of all the reasons i'm excited about this playoff field
0: to the pitcher's duel comment spare a thought for logan webb who did everything it took to win and then some and arias was was just just as good and the giants couldn't break through and they couldn't find a way to, to get that second run on the board. But what are like, I we were just sort of chatting idly about, about game one while it was happening last weekend. I mean, that's one of the best postseason games from one pitcher of the past couple of years for me. It's just the, his ability to stay out of the zone, to stay off of bats, to, to generate soft contact, like, I'm a, a sucker for a great sinker. I'm a sucker for a great changeup. The changeup is like all all things considered probably my favorite secondary pitch and he's got a great one. Uh just the the mound presence, you know, it, all like the intangible uh, intangible bullshit that you talk about, the bulldog mentality that uh that you think about with with a great playoff performance. I mean, it was just everything you could want more um from logan webb i think he made a i mean he's he might end up being the, the breakout star of these playoffs even though the the giants got out uh in the first round it just an incredible i think a star making performance from him even though it wasn't enough to win
1: talking about our favorite baseball games also i'd be remiss if i did not mention uh game seven of the 1924 world series yes. Our, I, I think the favorite game of this podcast writ large we want to change the
0: the name of this show to the Bucky Harris Power Hour, and Bill won't let us. So <laughs> it's, it says it's bad for SEO, but we know in this house, we respect Bucky
1: Harris. And game seven of the 1924 World Series, famously the Curly Ogden Maneuver, which the Dodgers didn't quite replicate last night, but in spirit, it, I think it was the same because it was predicated on removing the Giants' platoon advantage. Game seven of the 1924 World Series also featured a relief appearance from Art Neff, who came up on the broadcast last night. And finally, and I discovered this at the end of the game, because the Dodgers in the ninth inning moved Cody Bellinger from first base to center field. He became only the second player ever to play both first base and center field in a sudden death baseball playoff game. Number one, high pockets Kelly in 1924 World Series game seven. Everything coming up. Bucky Harris. Also, I I, I complete uh, I completely forgot. Maybe the second most obvious parallel, which is the winning team in 1924 was the Washington Senators, who used Walter Johnson as starter coming into uh, the bullpen on an off day because he completed the game just as Max Scherzer did last night. So Max Scherzer, kind of a modern day Walter Johnson, I suppose. The yeah, I think that's the fair... example fits a yeah. Washington pitching legend. So so many more parallels. I'm sure there are more. I forgot, but. I mean, ba- when you said the most history. obvious
0: one, I'm, the
1: Giants lost. Like, that's the... oh, I, all yeah, I even <laughs> forgot about that one. OK, we're going to uh, so, spend 30 more minutes talking about 1924 and then uh, Bobby can cut it all out as we move on to other series. Uh, we do love this game. Uh, spare thought also
0: for us uh, as prognosticators, because I think <laughs> one positive from the. You know, as sad as I was to see the Giants go, the Dodgers winning did prevent both of us from going 0 for 4 in our division series picks. Uh we both had um the Rays, the White Sox, uh the the Dodgers and the Brewers advancing and uh the Dodgers were the only team of those of those five, or of those four to to advance and they did it by about a small margin as you can imagine. So, we're good at predicting the future on this show.
1: Yeah, that's why I I prefaced all my predictions by saying don't gamble on short series baseball. I think I said the Brewers would sweep Atlanta. That obviously did not happen because they were shut out multiple times. It's hard to win games. We don't score any runs. Uh, Houston just pounded uh, the White Sox pitching staff. Boston split the first two games, which are in the bag pretty early, and then uh, won both of the two close games at home. So I, I think it was a good round. The Dodgers Giants game five elevating it. I, I there wasn't much drama beyond that, but the Boston Tampa series was also really fun. So you want to
0: talk about the hip check heard around the world and and sort of you know slide from the uh, Hunter Renfro's midsection of the NLDS
1: to the Red Sox bullpen of the ALCS. I don't really know where that analogy was going, but I'll join you on the ride. Um. So the Red Sox.
0: I would say serious underdogs in their uh, division series against the Rays ended up, you know, I think a lot of the individual games were close. This, this series struck me as a little bit like the 2015 World Series where the series itself was not that close, but there were a lot of good individual games. Uh, so, including late game comebacks uh, in game four by the Rays that ended up uh, eventually not meaning anything. The controversial uh, automatic double call uh in right field in um in game three, and now the Red sox, powered by the the love of uh robbins dancing on my own, are back in a rematch with the the astros in the a l c s uh this is the series that everybody wanted which uh which is what I wrote about for the site this morning
1: every you have an interesting definition of what everybody wants. I will say these two teams yeah yeah i mean interesting
0: definition like it's sarcasm.
1: Like,
0: yes, we've been doing this long enough. Like, yeah.
1: okay. yes. Carry on. We could we could be in for a long and high scoring series in the divisional round. The Red Sox and Astros average 7.1 runs per game between them, and that is the highest average for any pairing of championship series opponents in the whole wildcard era. So they both advance because of their offense. Houston, I think, was to be more expected, given that they had the best lineup and the highest scoring lineup in baseball this year. But at the same time, they were up against the White Sox and Boston was up against the Rays. And those two teams had the best ERAs in the AL this year. So it was a matchup of pitching versus offense and both offenses won. And I don't think as much of either Houston's or Boston's staff. So, you know, seeing what they just did against the best staffs in the American League, I'm kind of curious what will happen when they go up against lesser staffs in the ALCS and a longer round where the bullpens could get more tired. You definitely have to bring in a fourth starter. It could be a really high-scoring series. Is my point?
0: Yeah, we're gonna see. I'm as of right now. I've got Twitter open at like 11:30 a.m. on Friday. We're waiting for the official Astros roster because I think one thing that could end up uh, swinging this series is the availability of Lance McCullers, who uh, who got hurt during his last start in the divisional round and is right now up in the air. Uh, so if he's available to start Game Three or Four, then and in my estimation he's the Astros best starting pitcher you know we can talk about like him versus Framber Valdez if you want but if he's in this if he's in this rotation it's a different rotation it's a much 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 deeper rotation than what Boston has and you know i think Houston also has a better offense although that's closer certainly in a short series like you can see Devers or Martinez just absolutely go off um and the the deeper depth that deeper depth. Great. And the greater depth that that Houston has might not count for as much, but uh, the pitching staff is where I think Houston would really make a difference and that advantage takes a huge hit like not to be reductive, but like if you lose your best starting pitcher, it's hard to win a playoff series.
1: And I think the Boston rotation is certainly more up in the air because Alex Cora you know, as he did against Tampa he pitched Eduardo Rodriguez once through the order and then brought Nick Pavetta in and he uses Tanner Houck as a pseudo bulk guy anyway so we know chris sale pitch game one we know eovaldi will pitch game two eovaldi is the only guy in the entire rotation who i feel confident can go five or six innings in a game without some positional weirdness or platoon oddness going on so i'm not sure what these pitching matchups will look like but even if houston is down its game one starter i don't trust boston's bullpen at all at least houston has ryan presley Whereas the Red Sox, Garrett Whitlock has been great, but other relievers also gave up the lead in the eighth inning of both games three and four, which is why they needed to walk it off. So I could see Boston maybe getting to Houston's starters if... The if everyone has to move up and McCullers isn't there and you don't know who would start game four in that scenario, but at the same time, can they hold a lead against this lineup? Because Houston's goes seven deep. Kyle Tucker, as I mentioned on last week's pod, had the best WRC plus for any qualified hitter who made the divisional round, and he hit seventh in this lineup. That's just a lot of really tough bats to navigate four times a day.
0: And The point about getting the starters, particularly sale based on what we saw in the first round, if you knock him out early and you know that Alex core is going to come back and bring in Tanner Houck or Nick Pavetta, who is, you know, I'm not a huge Nick Pavetta fan, but he was awesome out of the bullpen in game three. Like, but if, if those guys are, are pitching bulk relief in game one or two, then that completely sh- shuffles up the rotation for the rest of the series. And so core has shown himself a little bit like Dave Martinez in 2019 to be willing to rob Peter, to pay Paul and just get, you know, win the game that's in front of you if if possible. Um, but that still means that he has to deal with the knock on effects later in the series. And so, you know, I think this is just going to be uh, a scenario where he views his pitchers as outgetters and he's just going to use whoever's rested for whatever out needs to be got in that moment and figure out the rest later. And, you know, that's sort of a, a stressful high wire act, but, you know, he's proven himself to be enough of a tactician to keep all those balls in the air. Uh, so I think that's, I mean, that's what he's going to have to do. And we're going to need to see those young, I mean, how can, and Pavetta aren't that young, but the younger, less consistent, big stuff, Red Sox guys, I think that's where this series is going to be won and lost, uh, regardless of McCuller's availability.
1: Are you a, a lineup balance guy? Do you care about lefty, righty, lefty, righty? I mean,
0: I think it depends. I mean, this I think back to to the twenty sixteen ALCS where it was the the heavily platoon Cleveland lineup, where versus the Toronto lineup that was almost entirely left or almost entirely right handed, and it didn't matter because all the right handed hitters were good and didn't have huge platoon splits. I think all things being equal, if you're gonna put, if you know which eight guys or nine guys in the American League case, uh, if you know which nine guys you, you want to put into the into your lineup then you should try to break up the lefties and righties like but that's not like i think the the primary consideration is just getting the best bats in the lineup but once you've assumed that then yes i am a big lineup balance guy
1: because i do think that's a subtle advantage that both of these lineups have we saw that in houston series when tony larussa who I think in years past before the advent of the three batter minimum could have used Garrett crochet as a loogie given how we know he liked to use relief pitchers in his heyday, but now Garrett crochet had to face three batters. So there were multiple times when he was brought in to face a lefty, but then had to stay in the game to face Yuli Guriel and Alex Bregman, both of whom had two run hits off him that swung games. So especially given the uncertainty that both bullpens have that could end up mattering because the top six or seven, which are the meat of each of these lineups have even splits. The Red Sox go Schwarber on the left, Hernandez on the right, uh, then Devers and Bogarts. And they kind of alternate. Martinez and Verdugo after them. And the Astros also have Alvarez in the middle, Brantley in the middle, but then righties surrounding them. So I think that makes it even more likely we'll see bullpens not be able to hold leads, circling all the way back to the start of the conversation about what makes for the most fun playoff games if you do get... The Red Sox scoring three in the top of the sixth, then Houston scoring three back in the bottom of the sixth. That could make for some really fun late inning roller coasters.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, to that point about the Astros lineup balance, this is a team that until very, very recently was extremely righty heavy. And it, yeah, you know, they were the best offensive baseball for, you know, for. There were reasons, but also because they had a lot of great contact hitters. And so you could get away with with having a ton of righties in the lineup. if You have Correa and Altuve and Gurriel, but bringing that left handed power with Tucker and Alvarez specifically and also Michael Brantley, like who I've seen this some variation on this joke 50 times during the first round of the playoffs, like he's going to be hitting 300, 385, 450 until the 2030s. Like he's just like living like a a late career Paul O'Neill. Um, maybe a less angry Paul O'Neill, uh, but it's, just from the perspective, he's just going to keep hitting line drives until they cart him out of there or until he gets bored and decides he wants to go live on a beach. Um, but he's, uh, he had a great first round. Um, yeah, I still, I still really like this, this Houston offense. I think that's still the, the best, um, the best unit. If you want to take the two lineups and the two pitching staffs, um, and, I think that combined with a a somewhat deeper pitching staff, combined with home field advantage, you know, I I think the Astros are, they have to be favorites here.
1: The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing.
0: Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
1: What's your? Should we make a prediction after yeah, a horrible let's a showing around? You one? know,
0: and and if you listen to last week's podcast, you'll know exactly what that prediction's
1: worth. I'll say Astros and six.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Do you want, should I Astros in five just to be, just to be different?
1: Um, I'll, I'll you know. say back in twenty eighteen, I thought the Astros were going to win in five or six, even though the Red Sox were a hundred eight win team and Boston pants them, so th- they got some help from. What was it the Ben and Tendy catch when Craig Kimbrel yeah. was trying to blow a game? But they beat them pretty soundly. David Price and the clincher. So maybe Boston is the team nobody believes in once again.
0: Yeah, that's what we need is another great nobody believes in us Boston uh, Boston sports title. Um, yeah, I mean you mentioned that that 2018 ALCS. That's another series where the the balance of, of games one was pretty lopsided, but the individual games the margins were incredibly thin. Like, I mean, there were two, that was two plays away from, from going seven um, or from the Astros winning in, in six. So it's... Uh, oh, yeah, there it, was
1: the the fan interference with bets. That was a weird series.
0: Yeah, it was just a lot of real, you know, close high-scoring games, a lot of chaotic umpiring, a lot of spectacular defense. So, yeah, it's um also not helping two of the weirder outfields in major league baseball that always introduces a chaotic element um so there was in that
1: very series there was the ball that like rolled atop the left field wall not the monster but the wall separating the stands yeah the from the field at Fenway yeah. that yeah no a, a, in oh, Fenway no. that yeah yeah Marwin Gonzalez was chasing it like a right. little kid trying to grab something that his older brother is holding over his head weird series but I guess as we saw in the wild card game and also in the divisional round Fenway park is going to have it say in some of these games.
0: Yeah. Oh boy.
1: Um, do you want to talk about the, the sign stealing element? The fact that this
0: is the, the rematch, uh, you know, the two teams that, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I wrote 2000 words about this. So I guess if you're interested in that angle, then you can go to the ringer.com, uh, and read what I have to say, but it just, that feels like, you know, we just, talked about lineup balance nobody gives a shit about lineup balance in this
1: series
0: (laughs) like this is the people want to talk about 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 the
1: specifics of phil matone versus garrett whitlock in the seventh inning
0: i don't know it it just seems like everyone's got feelings and everybody's like 40 percent right it's just such an emotionally charged series from the neutral perspective and you know i understand that and i appreciate that and i think like you know we ought to decry foul play and malfeasance and but at the same time it this is not a moral enterprise it's a you know it's an amoral thing sports uh and if you base your rooting interest by moral purity you're just gonna there. You know, there's gonna be nobody left for you to root for i think it it's you know it, it's helpful to be able to hold okay the way i put that makes me sound like an asshole so i'll i'll, I'll put it this way uh you got to be able to hold more than one idea in your head at the same time. I, I think it's the the way you have to approach this. And so to, to understand, you know, there, these are two teams that, that cheated to win titles and probably got off a little light. And that might just be, this outcome might just be the, the best that we were able to do societally uh, or, you know, as a baseball culture and that sucks, but you know, that's life. We live in, we live in an unfair world.
1: I think, and this isn't a novel thought because we've talked about this before that the impression of these two teams and the folks involved specifically could be a lot different. If the pandemic hadn't made last season, so strange, the lack of fans in the stands meant that they weren't able to, to heckle the Astros all season long. Alex Cora was gone for a year before coming back, but it didn't really feel like he missed anything because the Red Sox were just bad mm-hmm. for 60 games. But it's not like there was a huge absence there. It just kind of faded into the background. And so when I see people talking about how great a manager Alex Cora is, he has never lost a playoff series, and that includes his time as Houston's bench coach in 2017. But there's a reason he wasn't around for the 2020 playoffs and uh, or for the 2020 season, I should say. And we have to acknowledge that when talking about his managerial ability he's a very good manager from the results but he also was involved in the biggest baseball scandal since the steroid era and it's weird like you say we have to hold those two ideas in our head at the same time but I think those should also both be acknowledged at the same time and we shouldn't just talk about one of them for the sake of the narrative of oh the Red Sox are a team nobody believed in but Alex Cora pushed them to victory he was involved as the architect in 2017. He was probably involved in 2018, too, regardless of what the evidence says, because mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense that he would have cheated for a team that won the title, then gone to another team that won the title, and also cheated in a similar way, and he had no involvement in it. It, it, it strains credulity. And again, I, I he's a very good manager. We saw him make smart strategic decisions all throughout 2018 and in 2021 so far. but. He also was involved in this other thing, as were all the Astros players who want us to forget about it. So that was part of the punishment. Rob Manfred said it was part of the punishment that they would have to put up with this skepticism. And I think they still are and probably will for a while until they all scatter to different teams.
0: I think the point about the the Astros players wanting to put it behind them, uh, it speaks to the way I would want to see this handled. Whether like there are two ways that to approach it one is that what Cora and uh, also AJ Hinch have done which is said like yeah we did this yeah it was bad like we're ashamed of it you know we're it's not going to happen again and I think like I don't know there's a, a novelty to apologizing for when you get caught doing something bad um, instead of just doubling down and and trying to act like it wasn't that big a deal which is you know what we've seen some of the Astros players Carlos Correa just can't like can't get his head around the fact that people don't like him because of this and you know you either got to own it and apologize or you got to own it and be like yeah fuck you so what like we won the world series so scoreboard so it doesn't matter and just accept you know be in that that heel that pariah and it's when you try to to minimize that to try to negate like the actual you know it's this is not the worst thing that that baseball teams do it's not the worst thing that athletes do but it's something that had a negative impact on a lot of people and uh and upset a lot of people and and negating that or trying to minimize the the effects of that i think it's where you you know you really get into trouble in terms of of public opinion i think a lot of that's a big reason why this isn't going away um so i don't know it's i just you know after we talked about that after i wrote the big thing today it, it like it's this is not the time to say I don't know if there's anything else to say about this but you know, we're into to two years of discourse about the science dealing scandal I doubt this will be the last time we bring it up
1: national League also a rematch just from a year ago don't even have yeah. to go back to 2018 kind of a forgotten fun series that went seven I a lot of the that games are closed that was
0: so much fun
1: yeah we get more uh will Smith on will Smith battles which mm-hmm. is always fun yeah I think Atlanta impressed me a lot in their series against the Brewers the offense wasn't great but I don't think we would expect it to be against a pitching staff as talented as Milwaukee's but Atlanta's pitchers man Morton and Freed and Anderson are a very good top three Matt and Jackson and Smith didn't allow a run in the back into the bullpen i can't imagine that that will continue to be the case against the dodgers who have a slightly better lineup than milwaukee does but freed and anderson and morton especially at the top of the rotation and because they went early they can set up the rotation early the way they want to in a way that the dodgers probably cannot so i think you have to at least assume atlanta win a couple of those games by virtue of the starters alone
0: yeah, that's, I mean, that's what they got to do. They got to minimize the number of innings that that bullpen pitches because, like, I think that, that that bullpen looked better than it is in the first round because Milwaukee just couldn't get a hit. And that's, you know, that's something I didn't anticipate. I thought that, that Adamus and shit like, they would be able to, to scrape something together and they just didn't. And it was all rowdies. Yeah, whatever else we know about this Dodgers team, they're going to hit. Like, they beat up a much better pitching staff Uh, then then Atlanta's in the first round for a couple of these games. Like they, you know, they got shut out a couple times, but they also scored nine runs, uh, in game two. And they can, if they can do that to the Giants, imagine what they can do to the middle of this Atlanta bullpen if, if one of those three, uh, big starters gets knocked out early. That said, if you get Morton, Freed, Anderson to give you six or seven innings, if you can minimize the, um, the number of, of outs of high leverage outs you have to get from that bullpen, then I, you know, I think, uh, Freeman and Albies and Austin Riley, who, um, I mean, we could talk about him in a little more depth in a second, like those guys can hurt anybody. And so, I don't know, this is not, I don't think this is anywhere near as good a Braves team as, as we saw last year. Uh, the team that went went up three one on the Dodgers, but it's still dangerous, and a lot of those core pieces are still there, and they've got enough starting pitching to make this a series. That said, like the Dodgers were eighteen games better this year, and that's a I think that's an accurate uh, an accurate depiction of the golf and talent between these two teams. So I think you have to make the Dodgers heavy favorites in this series.
1: Yeah, if there is going to be someone who joins Logan Webb in What you said earlier would be a breakout star of this postseason. I think Freed could be an example there. Freed, I don't think it counts as Freed. Like we've seen him do this. We have, but I feel times
0: over multiple years.
1: I feel like he's been overlooked in the Atlanta rotation just because Soroka came up and he was the shiny new thing, and then Anderson came up and he was the shiny new thing, and sixth best
0: uh, player under twenty five in the major. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Uh, But Freed, especially over the last couple months since August third. He has a 1.35 ERA, and that includes six shutout innings against Milwaukee, nine strikeouts, just three hits, no walks. So he has the potential, especially because this Dodgers lineup, I don't think is quite as deep as it has been in the past. Obviously, Muncie is missing, but even at the back end of the lineup, Bellinger had the game-winning hit, but he also just OPS 600 in that series. And Gavin Lux probably wouldn't start against Freed anyway, because he'd wouldn't hit lefties, but AJ Pollock is not someone you can count on in the playoffs. So I think the end of the lineup is beatable in ways that like the American lo- League lineups I don't think are. Of course, Atlanta's lineup is even worse than the Dodgers, but I just think in terms of where Atlanta has a chance here, it comes from someone like Freed having two strong starts.
0: Yeah, you can see the the path to victory for Atlanta is really easy to see. They just aren't going to have a lot of room for error. Like, they're not going to be able to afford Adam Duvall giving away outs on the bases the way he did in the mm-hmm. first round. Um, They'll I need mean, someone gonna... like
1: Ozzy Alves to hit better. They need someone yeah. besides Freeman and, and Riley to hit because Jock Peterson probably isn't going to hit two-pitch hit home runs again, although his return to Dodger Stadium is a fun subplot. Who knows? And, yeah. Uh, and I just think the the guys beyond Freeman and Riley, Ozzy Alves, Dancy B. Swanson... They need to come through and at least provide something beyond what they did in the first round.
0: Yeah. Um. So I mentioned Austin Riley. He's a, I think, one of the the handful of players who did the most to advance his reputation. At least it changed my mind about him as a player this season. Because going into uh, this season, the power was obviously there. The third base defense, however, iffy. The the contact skills iffy. And you know he still struck out a lot. But. uh, I think he really put it together and, and presented himself as a, as a full package of, of, of a, uh, all around player in a way that I didn't, you know, I didn't know that that was in there uh, at the start of the season. I think as recently as, as may, I was writing about the Braves as a team that should make a run at Chris Bryant, because I wasn't sure about it. Riley was in a position where he had earned a chance to prove himself, but I wasn't sure that he would. And I mean, he's been definitely their best right-handed hitter uh, this season, but I, just statistically very similar stat line to to Freddie Freeman. I think that that counterbalance has been huge for this lineup, and they don't, they're not going to win this series unless he has a big one.
1: You know how I know we don't believe in him as recently as midseason was we left him off our 25 under 25 That's list true. where Ian Anderson qualified and some other Atlanta players did. But I think to that point, until the season, Austin Riley between 2019 and 2020 had had a full season's worth Of plate appearances and he had a 288 on base percentage so i just didn't see this level of contact he also hit really poorly in the playoffs last season he had a 422 ops in the nlcs against la so he's just a different hitter now and supports freeman in the middle which i guess it's worth remembering when we say why atlanta looked like a better roster last year it's because they're missing ronald acuna jr now who's one of the 10 best players in the sport and that's being conservative
0: Quick, real quick, uh, the Astros lineup or the Astros roster has been released now, and Lance McCullers is not on it. So that, you know, that really shakes up um, what they can do. Jay Kaplan at the at the Athletic uh, had a pretty good breakdown of how much they might compensate, or whether you might see sort of a piggyback arrangement with Christian Javier and, and Zach Greinke, or one of them used as like a two to three inning reliever, even though neither of them is stretched out. Jake Odorizzi's on the roster, so he's an obvious candidate to start game four if it comes to that. Um, but yeah, that's a... I don't know, again, stating the obvious, but that's a pretty big blow for for Houston.
1: And that's where I think it might just be a case of they see what arms are still left after the first three games. If they have to use Javier in bulk relief if Framber doesn't pitch well in game one or something, that could change the calculus. And I think Just sticking with the NLCS for a second, I'm curious what the Dodgers and Atlanta do because neither of them used a fourth starter in the first round. They had Charlie Morton and Walker Buehler both pitch on short rest, and Atlanta used uh, Enoa in kind of bulk relief for Morton. The Dodgers didn't really have anyone do that because Buehler pitched quite well on short rest. So with the seven-game setup, which is 2-3-2, it's, I think, more likely that they will need to call on a fourth starter because if you don't then you need multiple guys pitching on short rest so i'm curious to see like the dodgers had tony gonsolin and david price who didn't pitch at all in the nlds i'm not sure if they trust price in particular at this point but i think that could be just another case of seeing who's left after the first few games to be able to take them out for hopefully four innings
0: yeah and my assumption is even though uh, even though he pitched last night, Scherzer still goes for game one since it was only an inning. Um, and then you get Bueller on full rest for game two. But I mean, this is, you know, it's a question now. Uh, even if, um, you know, even if Scherzer probably throws, like it's something to think about, and it's a problem they wouldn't have had to solve if Clayton Kershaw hadn't gotten hurt, for instance. So, you know, even the the teams that we think of as having more depth than they can use are still having to to find pitchers and and uh, and cobble together outs from, um, you know, from less than ideal situations. So, yeah, we don't know the the order of either starting rotation uh, as as we're recording on Friday, but uh, again. I would assume Morton and Freed versus Scherzer and Bueller, although we'll see what what actually gets announced.
1: They should let if it goes seven or something. They should have injured elbow Clayton Kershaw pitched to torn ACL Acuna, and whoever wins that matchup gets a one run lead to start Game Seven. I'd I don't watch. hate
0: that. Yeah. All right. Do you have a prediction for this
1: one? I will say, I think if the Dodgers were at like full pitching strength. And they hadn't had to pitch such a tense uh, game five last night. I would maybe go Dodgers in five. I'll go Dodgers in six to be safe. And it feels kind of like a cowardly move to pitch both to pick both series to end in six games because it's like ah, I don't think they're close enough to go seven, but I don't feel confident enough to go early. But I will say uh, Astros in six, Dodgers in six, and then we get the rematch of twenty seventeen the series to launch 10,000 takes Astros Dodgers in the world series. Also, I should mention two teams I have left from the pool. We picked a month oh, yeah, and a half ago. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you should me. I that. was, I was happy about the Dodgers yeah, winning last what, night for that what, only I, reason.
0: I think what this baseball postseason really needs is more reasons for smug Zach Cram. So that's, <laughs> That's really a, a an outcome we're all rooting for. Um, I'll go, I'll go Dodgers in five. Same reason, like gut feeling is six, but I want to be different. Um, I think one of those pitchers just go, one of the Brave starters just goes off and steals the game. Uh, you know, I could see this maybe stretching to six and seven if if the bottom third of the Dodgers lineup doesn't come come through. But I think in, in both cases we have a pretty clear favorite with an underdog with obvious strengths and a clear path to victory, but very little room for error. And so that's, uh, it's my read on this series. And, you know, as much as I just said, we were tired of, of sign stealing discourse, a rematch of 2017 wouldn't be, wouldn't be the worst thing. That was a pretty good series. First time around.
1: I will say we've spent the whole time talking about how we both think Houston is better and favored according to the Fangraphs odds, especially with McCullers out. Boston is favored to win the series by the Fangraphs odds, which kind of surprises me. But I guess they just beat the Rays, who were the best team in the AL. So, ask seven Adam Wainwright series, what that's happen. worth.
0: Ask Adam Wainwright what what the Fangraphs odds are worth. That's, <laughs> that's my my take on that. Um, so we're not going to do the the unnamed weekend preview segment as such because we just spent the entire podcast previewing the weekend in an unnamed fashion. So, uh, I guess. Look out the the LCS is coming and uh, we'll be back next week to talk about the aftermath and and preview the world series. Uh, So that will do it for this week's episode of the ringer MLB show. Be sure to follow us on the ringer baseball feed at Spotify, where you can get baseball barbecue on Tuesdays and our shows every Friday. Uh, thanks to Zach, as always, for joining me. Thanks to Ben Glucksman for taking time out of his busy day to do a three-minute gag. I really appreciate that. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Corey Knabel, Robin, and Max Scherzer for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.